Hello again everybody, uh, this is uh, Jason Powers. So I'm going to do a, a fairly long broadcast tonight, I don't know, we'll see how long it takes me to go through this. Um, I've titled this roughly uh, the McKinder Theory uh, broadcast and it's related to geopolitics and what I'm getting at with that uh, uh, idea or philosophy. It's not my philosophy. I, uh, I'm going to read a, a section I just wrote uh, um, actually in the last couple of days regarding uh, the geopolitics of the, the present day and how it harkens back to the geopolitics of the past, which everything comes from the past. Nothing really ever dies, by the way, um, at least in terms of concepts and thinking and orientation. Uh, think of the Malthusian theory that came up uh, roughly about you know 220 years ago, still in operation today. Um, that's where we're at. And I'm hoping that uh, this broadcast can be uh, uh, useful um, in terms of uh, explaining that situation. Hoping that uh, uh, we can learn something together um, in, this, in this regard. And I'm also going to bring it uh, forward to the present day. So I was reading over this document that was released recently by our um, people in Washington, D.C. regarding... Uh, how we're going to confront uh, China and Russia in the, in the near future. And I'm going to pick some things out and we'll go from there. So uh, hopefully we can uh, go from there. Oh, so without further ado, sorry, I'm going to read this uh, section I wrote. Um, and it's uh, actually it's going to spill over into some other ideas but we'll go from there so I'll get started here history is replete with agendas sought and agendas spoiled only to be tried again with better designed technocratic tools ranging from supersonic airplanes to fiber optics to social media to spies McKinder's world island informed the mindsets of geopolitical masters and fools since the beginning of the 20th century the goal of controlling the unified mass from Eastern Europe heartland to China and the North Pole to the bowels of the Middle East, the Rimland, or down even to the Cape of Good Hope, World Island, seems a fas fascinating concept for the geopolitical experts. Such a dogma ke keeps international policy wonks and think tankers employed in cushy positions in D.C., but rarely sees alternative designs and implementation to this century-old concept. McKinder's geopolitical power dynamics lay at the heart of the 20th century wars and battles waged from London to Moscow through Berlin, Paris, and Washington, D.C., with alliances, pacts, and treaties routinely breakable as the ice that forms in the North Atlantic and as dangerous as the massive ships that navigate into such ice fields to their titanic demise. The world island provided an unfathomable deadly iceberg as well. From World War I in 1914 through to the end of the Cold War in 1991, the shape of geopolitics hinged off the various fates of players and their control of places like Ukraine, the breadbasket and resource-laden territory that incurred more blood spilt than anywhere else on the globe 
aside from China under Mao. The worst warfare ever conceived and conscripted launched off Operation Barbarossa and ended in Berlin's destruction by May of 1945. Twenty million or more died trekking into and out of the real estate called the Heartland under McKinder's theory. A paper from the U.S. Army War College in 2000 by Christopher Fettweiss posits in the aftermath of World War I or World War II, a love affair with McKinder's ideas placed geopolitics inside three prevailing, if not exclusive, uses. Geopolitics of X, a survey of a particular resource, oil, information. Kissinger's realpolitik, seeking favorable equilibriums through less-than-clear motivations to populations at large, Machiavellianism. Geopolitics tied to a grand strategy, a reinstitution of Mackinder. Tellingly, the base, basic Mackinder uh, did not. Uh, tellingly, basic Mackinder did not escape the Nazis. Fettweiss writes, Mackinder's theories, built into World War One thinking, might have faded into irrelevance were it not for the apparent influence on the foreign policy of Nazi Germany. A German geopolitician and devotee of Mackinder, Karl. Haushofer spent the interwar period writing extensively about the heartland and the need for a Lebensraum, additional territory deemed essential for continuing national well-being for the German people. One of Haushofer's pupils was Rudolf Hess, who brought his teacher into the intellectual circles of the Reich. Haushofer was appointed by Hitler to run the German Academy in Berlin, which was more of a propagandistic institute institution than a true academy in the continental European sense. Wartime paranoia fed an image of a secret German science of geopolitik that was driving Nazi action, bringing Mackinder and Haushofer onto the American intellectual radar screen. In 1942, Life magazine ran an article titled, Geopolitics, the Lurid Career of a Scientific System, which a Briton Briton invented the Germans use and the Americans need to study, which captured the mood of the period, imagining a cabal of foreign policy scientists dictating policy for the dictator. Opinions differed between those who prescribed rapid acceptance of the geopolitic and those who dismissed it as pseudoscience. The latter opinion was strengthened, of course, by Germans' eventual defeat. Germany's eventual defeat. Updates formulated during the launch of the Cold War involved the Rimland or Inner Crescent with respect to the containment of the USSR. Zebenu Brzezinski, a geopolitical peer and friend of Kissinger's, made the Rimland into the geopolitical and U.S. foreign policy edition, the Ark of Crisis. Henry Kissinger, a quote, Henry Kissinger used the term geopolitics to denote any policy dependent upon power principles at the expense of ideology and sentimentality. Kissinger's worldview was less dependent upon geographical realities than some of the other cold warriors, especially Zebenu Brzezinski, who was President Carter's national security advisor and a graduate school mentor of Madeleine Albright. Brzezinski has made Eurasia the focus for U.S. foreign policy in all of his writing, a consistently warning of the dangerous, dangerous advantages that the heartland power had over the West. 
an exploration, unquote, an exploration of the reoccurring Russian obsession by U.S. State Department journeymen hinges on the embedded programming courtesy of the Kissingers, Brzezinski's, Albright's, and Paul Wolfowitz's of the world. Their teachings populate the foreign policy of the Biden administration, Victoria Newland and Tony Blinken, and reflect a bygone era reinstituted to serve those with nebulous agendas. This, of course, is not saying this is this, of course, is not to say ignoring Russia should be done. Rather, the priority has never de-escalated towards affirming a greater affinity to Russia historically than China. At the heart of the 21st century, McKinder plan. Uh, t- at the heart of the 21st century, McKinder's plan lay uh, lay pillars that these uh, geopolitical forces do realize matter. These are. Uh, impenetrable foreign invasions, mobility, rail, air, shipping, and internet are easily linked. Centralized location, the world island reflects geography, resources, and productivity. This is obvious from geological surveys. Land, population, resources combined equals hegemony. The closest ever to achieve the pivot area or inner crescent domination came from the Far East, uh, the Mongols. And, like, and likely this inspires Xi Jinping's duplicative attempts. Xi's Belt and Road Initiative is disguised as an infrastructure uh, disguised as infrastructure projects, as Real Defense Francis P. Uh, Simta wrote in October 2023. The remarkable thing about China's BRI is how it replicates the world island on the map. In a fascinating article in The Diplomat entitled How China's Belt and Road, uh, Belt and Road Took Over the World, Shannon uh, Tzizi shows the geographical evolution of the BRI. In 10 years, the BRI has extended its reach to 154 countries. On the Eurasian African World Island, only India, North Korea, Jordan, and a few nations of the Western Europe have escaped China's financial and infrastructure grasp. In the decade since Xi came to power, China spent over a half trillion dollars on projects to con- uh, congeal his Marco Polo or Silk Road march towards a less bloody world island acquisition plan. Though if COVID-19 was less of an accident and more of a convenient way to escalate certain beneficial actions regarding control operations by a China-led cabal, then the blood on Xi, Trump's, or Biden's hands may need further evaluation with respect to the serendipity of Xi partnering with Putin in February 2022 towards a McKinder-style World Island completion operation. <clears throat> While the Europeans recovered from two bloody wars, China ran as a communist backwater going into the 1970s under Mao. China, uh, China's malaise was apparent to anyone, in prior conflicts, Korea and Vietnam made for trust issues like always. But she was offered priority access to U.S. markets from Carter's Declaration of Formal State Recognition in December 1978 over Taiwan. This was but a continuation of the Nixon-Kissinger outreach plan presented to Mao just as Taiwan was formally delisted by U.N. Resolution Number 2758 on October 25, 1971. Future President George Herbert Walker Bush then helmed the U.S. representation at the U.N. The intrigues behind the PRC's entry with the ROC's remaining uh, 
in the UN hinged on the appetites of American capitalists access to one quarter of the world's population, then becoming a market for General Motors to IBM to RCA TVs, the biggest American brands in cars, computers, and small electronics in 1971. Taiwan's diplomatic position ran at odds with Kissinger's mission to separate China from Russia's orbit, even though such a position was eroding in the years prior. Brookings Singrid Winkler wrote in June 2012, However, in the beginning of the 1970s, the United States saw the geopolitical opportunity to move closer to China in a strategic move against their, uh, against their by then common adversary, the Soviet Union. The United States eventually broke formal relations with the ROC only in 1979, but the strategic shift in the early 1970s combined with a large number of newly independent, independent former colonies that had some ideological solidarity with Beijing turned the tide once and for all against Taipei. Still, it was a combination of Taipei and Beijing's long-standing opposition to proposals by the PRC and ROC representation in the UN together with global strategic changes that led to the end of the ROC representation in the UN and the consequence also to the ROC's expulsion from all other major international organizations. On September 12, 2001, the Taipei Times published a retrospective on the ROC's erasure from the UN. Quote, The UN is an amphitheater whose gladiators are nation-states, with everyone playing realpolitik. If the dual representation proposal were passed in 1971, Communist China would definitely have refused to enter the UN. We could at most drag things out for another two years or so before being ousted from the UN, retired Taipei Ambassador Lo Ai-ching wrote. In Kissinger's The White House Years, he wrote, On May 7, 1971, the Department of State, Commerce, Treasury, and Transportation published regulations implementing the White House announcement of April 14 that liberalized economic relations with China. The Treasury Department removed all controls on the, U- on the use of U.S. dollars or dollar instruments, except for those in blocked accounts, in, trans- in transactions with Peking. As a result, Chinese Americans were now permitted to send dollars to relatives on the mainland. American-owned ships under foreign flags were also permitted to stop at mainland China ports. U.S. flag vessels could henceforth transport goods destined for the mainland from U.S. to non-Chinese ports or from one non-communist port to another. Key signals of Taiwan's territorial demolition were sent two months prior to Kissinger's visit to the Forbidden City in July 1971. To quote Kissinger, We were now committed. All that remained was the act. Such acts, initially called democratization through capitalism, later were quaintly guised as globalization, henceforth by Kissinger and Brzezinski's foreign policy punditry crowd. Kissinger as the roving mouthpiece of the world order, and Brzezinski more subtly as the intellectually driven towards the complete defeat of the Russians, starting, uh, starting particularly in Afghanistan in 1979. The military muscle flaunted by the neocon Bushes, that of the Middle East wars to destabilize the underbelly of Russia, the Ark of Crisis, came out of the mine of Brzezinski. 
Brent Scowcroft, George Herbert Walker Bush's national security advisor, like, uh, like Brzezinski was President Carter, said in 2012, over the decades since, China policy stands out as the most successful part of U.S. foreign policy through that period. And I'll end it right there. So that gives you an idea of what's going, uh, you know, uh, what I'm working on. Uh, this is a sample, and obviously it may change a little bit, but that's what I'm, that's about. It's in the, the part one section of the book, of the first volume. Um, I'm doing, I'm, I'm hesitant to say I'm going to get to this, but I think I'm going to publish a three-volume series on this entire time frame. And what I'm getting at with, you know, giving this background is uh, it lends itself to what's going on at present. Um, these people, I mean, Kissinger is still talking and still uh, influencing and whether it be in Ukraine or whether he's making a visited Beijing recently and uh, was sitting <laughs> a stone's throw from uh, Xi Jinping and uh, our current uh potato in chief uh, uh doesn't even get a holler but of course that's you know by design too because uh she knows what he has in um biden he knows everything that he needs he needs to know about the bidens and it probably disgusts him um we're going to move on though to uh more current affairs uh and and uh we'll we'll look at that in just a second so i just need to take a drink there for a second so before we go forward, well, I'm going to read just this real short bit on uh, Halford McKinder. And this was a paper written by Brian Boulet of Col the College of w William Mary. So it's just a research paper, but uh, he he encapsulates a, a certain, uh, some names that we need to be aware of because it plays into the current, current uh, days of, you know, the present tense. So in 1904, McKinder identified four possible contenders for control of the core of Eurasia. The contenders were the German Empire, the Russian Empire, China, and Japan. Mackinder added, should Germany and Russia ally, the empire of the world would be, a, would be in sight. By implication, the British Empire would be eclipsed. Mackinder wanted his audience to consider the unpleasant reality and understand that at the time that it was time to federate the empire to give Britain more weight in uh, world affairs. In Democratic Ideals and Reality in 1919, Mackinder declared, who rules, the East, uh, who rules East Europe commands the heartland, Mackinder, uh, page 150. The heartland was a large version uh, of the pivot. Only two major powers about, uh, about Eastern Europe, German, uh, Germany and the emerging Soviet, emerging Soviet Union, and Mackinder leaves no doubt to which is stronger. The Russians are hopelessly incapable of resisting German penetration, uh, page 158. China and Japan, not abutting Eastern Europe, were uh, downgraded as threats. Mackinder is correctly predicting that the immediate threat to uh, peace will come from a resurgent Germany. Was this at the time regarded as uh, an egocentric view? No, it was commonplace. Arthur Balfour, a member of the British War Cabinet, believed that Germany in World War I was making a bid for world supremacy. In a cabinet paper on October 4, 1916, Balfour declared that even in defeat, Germany would remain wealthy, populous, and potentially formidable. 
more than a match for France. Um, that's according to Lloyd, Lloyd George, who was a uh, prime minister of uh, uh, Britain. The future restraint of Germany was not solely a France, a Franco-British concern. A few days after Balfour submitted his cabinet paper, the first issue of the New Europe appeared. The leaders in the venture were Stetson Watson and Thomas uh, Masaryk. Masaryk, the first president of Czechoslovakia, um, I don't know if I got that name, pronunciation right, first president of Czechoslovakia, left Prague as the war began and took, took a post at King's College, London University, where he was a colleague of Stetson Watson. So I just wanted to bring in, because uh, Arthur Balfour was mission, mentioned, and one of the, in, in bringing it forward to the present day, the Balfour Declaration, and this is according to Wikipedia, I hate using it, but we, it does have the basic concept in one paragraph. The Balfour Declaration was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during the First World War announcing its support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Then, as an Ottoman uh, region with a small minority Jewish population. The declaration was uh, contained in a letter dated November 2nd of 1917 uh, from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish uh, community, for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. The text of the declaration was published in the press on November 9th of 1917. So that just gives you an idea, and there's a um, uh, a brief look at this. I'll look at it real quickly. So this was on. Uh, this is what it said. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspiration, which has been submitted to and approved of by the cabinet. His Majesty's gover government view with the favor of the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate that achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in, other, in any other country. I shall be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation, signed uh, Lord, Balfour, uh, Lord Balfour. So... What I'm getting at is like anything else, you have this this geopolitical um, game that has actually, uh, we have lost our muscle memory in regards to this because for some of us who, you know, depending upon when you, how old you are and how aware you are, um, geopolitics was something like in my in my case, I grew up with. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s, I was of a awareness of, of those things going on. Of course, there was a lot of um, focus on it in the media. I remember, you know, I, I'm not going to go into policies of these people, but I remember the names, uh, you know, you know, Helmut Kohl, Helmut Schmidt. I remember, you know, the people who run run the nations of the time. Obviously, you know, Margaret Mar Maggie Thatcher. Um, uh, Lech Wałęsa, Poland, uh, the people that were on the international stage at the time, and who was talking to who? Leonid Brezhnev, uh, Yuri Andropov, who was the mentor of one, you know, KGB uh, legal guy in uh, uh, 
Vladimir Putin, uh, the the whole host of people who uh, gather their their mentor, the people that you currently see on the world stage, and and still some that are still around, you know, the Klaus Schwabs of the world, who you know he has discussed his uh, his relationship with Henry Kissinger and 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 learning at at his uh, at his hand and. And the fact that that he launches uh, it just so happened in nineteen was nineteen seventy one right as uh, we the American uh, America went off the gold standard, you know Klaus Schwab and his uh, European Economic Forum, you know the establishment of the, what would become known as the World Economic Forum occurred, and Europe was still considered the center, you know, um, you know, China was nothing. Uh, Europe was uh, still considered the intellectual superior of the American. We were just the muscle that they, you know, uh, you know, had delved, you know, had had created, and, and and they they still looked down upon us. They saw us as you know, you know, upstarts and uh, un, unruly and un, uh, uh, un basically uh, uncontrollable. So why is this important? Well, oh, I, and like I said, I look at the relationship between, well, there's some people who, who put the analogy of the current you know, crisis, the <laughs> brewing, I would call it holy war, because that's what it, um, that's what it'll be labeled as between the Jewish population and Hamas, and Hamas being, um, you know, obviously... The, 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 there's the Zionism, the you know baby Netanyahu who's been he's a neocon. He's of the stripe that uh, the Wolfowitzes and the Madeleine Albrights. Uh, they're all cut from the same, almost the same uh, cloth uh, in terms of how they uh, they deal with things. And this goes to the paper that I was looking at. It called it's the paper is called Strategic Posture Commission Report. I'll leave a link to it. It's a, it's 160 pages, but we're gonna just go through. There's a, there's some certain highlights. Uh, actually, uh, I'm gonna start with this highlight in the middle of this because it's talking to the two-peer threat. So the commission's. Uh, I'm gonna read like three paragraphs here. The commission's time frame of focus: 2027 to 2035. I'm gonna blow it up. I'm sitting away from it will present the United States with a fundamental new and pernicious set of challenges. The central feature of this environment is that the United States will face two major nuclear-armed adversaries in China and Russia. Their projected capabilities magnify how complex this competition could become and combine to pose an existential threat to the United States and its allies and partners. Geopolitical competition over the global rules and norms that will guide the future will make the next few years critical in determining who and what will shape the strategic landscape. Now they start off this uh, uh, paper talking about the you know the authoritarian nature of China and Russia, which uh, <laughs> I mean, aside from yes, that's that can be true, but also can be true is the authoritarian nature that is being installed in the United States of America against its own population, which goes to the way this paper is structured in terms of what they say is important 
but uh, in regards to the American people, that we should become more aware of this and we should be more supportive than these people. Yet these are the people that have been lying to us and and uh, uh, will attack the people. And oh, by the way, they talk about national security and they talk about all the different ways in which China and Russia can uh, uh, garner a um, advantage over us. Uh, leaving aside completely that the entire southern border is being left wide open and all kinds of bad actors can sneak across that can be uh, at the behest of China and Russia or any other um, nation-state actor or non-nation-state actor. But let's just, we're going to write up this huge report and we're going to talk about how important it is for us to get funds because this this is uh, Pentagon-related um you know analysis and they talk about all the people they brought in to to inform their ideas but that's what i'm getting the, the thing is is they talk out both sides of their mouth plus then on top of that they throw climate change and they throw in how we're going to uh we're going to move away from uh reliable you know <laughs> reliable and absolutely vital energy resources while we try to transform our economy based upon oh by the way what what is more likely to be fixed and and able to operate a well that's in the ground a long way down even under under uh and they mentioned nuclear attack but let's just say uh there's some kind of cave-in is it easier to dig a dig a, dig another hole where the well is and and somehow uh, get back to uh, pumping oil, or would it be easier to replace you know ten thousand windmills or however many thousands of windmills that they want to put up in the put up in uh, you know for green energy uh, using uh, using products that are made in China and, and blades and using all the the mineral deposits that are coming uh, from around the world into China. And have China be the controller of your energy policy, certainly the energy policy that these people are delusional enough to think that you can put in place in, 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 in terms of fighting a, uh, a fifth generation war. They're using the, the, this whole paper just I, 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 so far what I've read, they haven't mentioned the absolute inanity of the policies that are currently operating inside the Biden administration and to try to address uh, a two-front war, and we'll we'll get into it. So I'm a, I, I'm getting off on a tangent because I'm just I frustrated with the way uh, people put together a huge paper and they they uh, ignore the biggest elephants in the room, which is you know <laughs> who's running the show. So according to uh, this is this is a quote from the paper: China, China is pursuing its revisionist aims while reorientate reorientating its nuclear posture for strategic rivalry with the United States because its leaders viewed the current capabilities as insufficient. In its rhetoric, the People's Republic of China leadership often employs strategic ambiguity to obfuscate both planning and decision-making. China currently indicates no interest in negotiating risk reduction, strategic stability dialogue, or arms control agreements that restrict its plans and will not agree to negotiations that diminish it or lock in U.S. or Russian advantages. Heightened confidence in PRC nuclear forces is likely to bolster China's resolve, intensify conventional conflicts, and increase the risk of miscalculation. 
ain't that a mouthful um, especially the whole idea that they currently have no interest in negotiating risk reduction. Now imagine that. Why aren't they interested in any negotiation, irrespective of what they they put the labels on that for? Why is that? Why aren't they interested? Um, I thought Trump was the big problem, and you know, uh, Biden was the the adult to be put in the room, and things would all get better. This is the po- this is the point of this whole. Uh, actually this podcast is you've uh, people have ignored the geopolitical elements in some of them some people who are uh, of a particular stripe of politic I, I've seen them uh, recently and when I say political particular stripe they're attached to Silicon Valley they're well-to-do blah 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 they're 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 if certain people i don't know their entire biography but i've seen them before they're big hitters you know and they're suddenly realizing the dangerous the dangers that are currently uh, circulating the globe and they're starting to it's starting to dawn on them that this is not a good <laughs> this is not good for business this is definitely not good for investment it's in sta- uh, in uh, unstable it's not an environment uh, where they can calculate and they can operate in a way, in a fashion that they had before just five years ago. And they realize that they don't know who they can a trust, where they can move their money to, where their investments will flourish and where their investments will absolutely get curb stomped or seized. They don't even know that inside the United States, irrespective of the international scene. And they're realizing that they they can't they can't be they they can't they can't game the system the way they have gamed the system. And they're worried and it's starting to real dawn on them just a little bit that they have made a absolutely horrific strategic error in their own in their own particular circumstances by uh, the one guy this is the I'll, I'll find the link to this tweet so he starts off and he says you know i was sold and told and and i thought you know trump was an f on everything f on everything then you know by you know towards the end i was thinking eh, you know maybe he's like a c he says now i look at him i look at him in light of everything that's going on i'm thinking he was basically a B or B plus. Uh, I think, and, he, and I think he's talking broadly in uh, foreign policy and geopolitical terms, and just things in general and the policy uh, situations that were under him versus <laughs> what he's getting now. And he's starting to. It, it, and like I said, this guy, if you looked at him, you wouldn't know this. And a lot of this broadcast, though, is also tied back to. Um, Today I was listening to a couple people where I was parked at, and they were talking about you know uh, other circumstances that came up. Um, they're in the medical profession, from what I can gather, and I was listening to them talk about certain topics, and and they were even talking about the Supreme Court and some of the other things, and they were you know they mentioned Marbury versus uh, Marbury Madison. And how that didn't have, um, you know, they 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 just they just this just like the Supreme Court. They don't want. They would like it just. To, we need to 
start off. These people are destructionist. They're Bernie bros too. You know, they mentioned Bernie Bernie Sanders and they were talking about, you know, maybe things would have been better if we'd have been able to get this and this and this. It's like these are socialists. These these people think like socialists. They act like socialists. Um, yeah. They live in a delusional world. They they live in, they've grown up in a world where they've been allowed to um, push these ideas but there's no way they will ever get implemented and I'm, I know I'm off on a tangent but hear me out <laughs> they don't even realize and this is coming that the financial situations that the United States are facing are incomprehensibly uh, the magnitude of them and when they blow, when they pop, and our enemies, the Russians, and and then here's the thing. The Russians didn't have to be our enemies, but yet we made them our enemies. We continued the same dogma that has festered inside of our country. Um, you know, you crushed the USSR. We did a piss poor job of developing a... Agree, uh, we made agreements and then we reneged on these agreements and this comes through in this paper too that we refuse to understand that if you do not hold to your agreements and yes other countries have done this to us too but here's the thing we're in the power position we were the one left we were the last man standing we were the world power so it is imperative, imperative that you're supposed to keep to your agreements, especially when it came to NATO and the fact that we allowed it to move east only only just only made it easier for Russia to do the things that they have done. And it set up a whole a calculus that they are playing and using Ukraine, Ukraine once again, it, this is a going back to McKinder. This goes back to everything the neocons believe in. They, you know, we we ignore that uh, we the, we had a coup that went on actually pr just months prior to the Ukrainian thing in Kazakhstan. We uh, we were attached to that. There was CIA involvement there. We were trying to destabilize the underbelly of, and they knew it, and they know that we were doing it, and we have been caught doing this stuff around the world. And the more you do this, now granted, people sit here and think that, oh, well, they're doing things to us. They're interfering with our elections. It's like you do realize that between our borders, between Canada and Mexico, and for the most part, we are fairly isolated physically. Maybe not electronically, obviously, with the Internet. But it, <laughs> those things with the Internet this can be educated into people in better ways instead of trying to censor things into people by restricting their access or making everything that they share a crime, which is what they're trying to get to. If you want to improve your geopolitical um, knowledge base or support, it certainly would help if you start with, I don't know, some truth, your damn self. Like uh, Rand Paul says, the United States government is the most most prevalent at spreading disinformation. And it's true. You can't live a lie forever. 
You have to wake up to what's being done to you. You have to wake up to the reality that our government has been involved in some very nasty shit. And now they have not only lost the moral authority of that by being this way, now they're losing the financial, the economic horsepower to even support the concepts that they're trying to push. They, they, they lay out in this paper, by the way, a lot of this little, at least early on, they make it seem like they're just like this holier-than-thou group of people that, you know, they see that they're seeing around the forest. I mean, they, uh, they uh, let me go back to the very beginning here, the people that signed on to this paper. So this is a, um, you know, kind of a group paper that was put together by, so Madeline Creenden was the chair, John Kyle, they're both in the Congresses, or have been. And they have an executive summary here at the beginning. Uh, and they talk about, you know, the urgent action and all this other stuff. So, the you know, they, they go into the amount of money that needs to be put together and uh, how they should be able to uh, address this. Let's see. I'm looking at this. Uh, look at the, there's a, I'm trying to read here real quick and see how I can uh, explain this. So the strategy, okay, they have, I'll just hit the bullet points of their strategy. To achieve the most effective strategy for stability in light of the 2027-2035 threat environment, the commission identifies three necessary changes. The United States must develop and effectively implement a truly integrated whole-of-government strategy to address the, the threat environment. Notice that phrase, whole of government. Where have you heard that before? They've been doing that for the last, you know, whole of government approach. Pure centralization, you know, all the agencies. You know, um, they, wanna, they, they want to have so many agencies interconnected together. You know, that's the whole of government approach. It's actually very, yeah, it's, <laughs> it is in fact very authoritarian. And by the way, it doesn't mean... We we know these agents are, agencies are filled with just absolute nut jobs, and they despise the hell out of the American people. So second, the objective of the U.S. strategy must include effective deterrence and defeat of simultaneous Russian and Chinese aggression in Europe and Asia using conventional forces. If the United States and allies and partners do not field sufficient conventional forces to achieve the objective, U.S. strategy would need to be altered to increase reliance on nuclear weapons to deter or counter opportunistic or collaborative aggression in other in another theater. Uh, so reliance on nuclear to deter or counter. These people think that there's like going to be a, 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 a you know multiple strike war with nuclear. I mean, <laughs> mutually assured destruction is just now they they think that they. I mean. Obviously, deterrence is, a, is an impact of this, but uh, if you want to keep deterrence, it might be a good idea to make sure that your uh, facilities that store your nuclear weapons are secure, and one way you're not getting that is by having hundreds of thousands of people come across the border, and probabilistically, if you have a million people come across the border, what is the chances of those of those that you know, one percent. We don't even have to get to one percent, one tenth of one percent. So one thousandth of that. Let's just say one thousandth of of that. Well, that's a thousand people for one million. You you get you get the idea that you know you don't have, you can have enough people here, that have a agenda, 
they are well prepared and they work in collective cells and you know there's a thousand of them you can have cells of 20 that's 50 cells 50 cells can do a hell of a lot of damage in the united states of america and they don't have to all activate at the same time they could activate at the same time they could activate geographically they could activate uh, on a randomness i mean there's a whole mechanism there and a thousand people is a substantial amount like i said they can come across and they those cells could come across in a period of like three weeks or three months it could be and they're assigned to go certain places and uh trek to certain locales and set up operations there i mean the fact that our people in this country that are responsible for national security are so oblivious to this and act like this doesn't can't occur is is the existential threat i you know uh, vladimir putin doesn't have to push much of a button all he has to do is just say okay it's go time or xi jinping i don't think i honestly i don't think even putin wants to do the things that he he could he's been uh there's a certain i think i'm this is just my hypothesis I think there's a calculus that is obviously well. This is this is a this is the problem with uh, no di- diplomatic, uh, you know, or no diplomacy being uh, explored. I think there's a calculus with him, and his calculus is this: he wants to get back to a certain equilibrium point, if you want to call it, use Kissinger's, in respect, especially to Ukraine. Ukraine is a bad actor. They have always been a bad actor, but they are definitely a bad actor in the last 25 to 30 years in American foreign policy. They have sucked up. They, they are just as bad as China when it comes to infiltrating themselves inside our, our establishment, our D.C. establishment. And by infiltration, they have um, curried their favors. They've pushed their anti-Russian agenda, of course. They have a long-standing, I understand, they have a long-standing hatred, much like some other populations that happen to be located in the Middle East have a long-standing history. The problem is with people who, in these particular long-standing, antagonistic uh, mind for, uh, mindsets, is that they're, they, they're so focused on their own victimhood that they have no concept of how to not be victims and to to accede or at least come to some kind of uh, term, a terminal relationship with that particular mindset. I'm not saying you ignore your, or forget that that didn't happen to you. I'm saying that at some point you have to be able to bury that hatchet and come forward in time and work on agreements and and stop acting like an aggrieved party and by that i mean i'm not saying things don't continue to go on they do but the aggrieved party uh, being having grievances they have to be weighed in magnitude to what you're trying to accomplish in order to have peace or some semblance of peace and cut out this stuff but 
be that as it may, we know historically that people who are involved in these negotiations who have tried to attempt to get bring parties very, um, let's just say, very uh, antagonistic parties together and say, look, there's a better way forward that will make it economically beneficial for both of you. There's a way to make it so that people can, uh, both sides can get, you know, something of what they want and we can uh, break this break this deadlock. Sure enough, a lot of these people wind up dead themselves. They get assassinated for trying to trying to work on if they legitimately want to work on these things. They get attacked, and they obviously there's always people that do not want peace. That's why it's so imperative that you have somebody who is a um, in almost an outsider and is well uh, well respected on both sides even even the people that are you know don't want the peace they're they respect the person uh positionally or they just respect the person because uh they don't they don't they're not two-faced sobs you have to have somebody comes in who's just you know look i'm trying to get the best for best i can get for everybody not just you know I'm not I'm not coming in and putting my finger on the scale and trying to tip the scale to one side or another. As soon as any of that gets, you know, in, in embedded in these situations, it's that's that, that's why diplomacy is such a it's an art and it is a science. Um and we don't have people that do it anymore. They don't know how to. These people are they're just retarded. They don't understand any of this shit. They certainly don't it, they can they may have much more uh, a deeper knowledge of of all the little the tit, the tit for tat and little uh you know personal stories and uh personal chronologies of of a host of characters who did things along the way but that's the point sometimes that can be just as bad or uh you know actually sabotaging because then they're they're typically wrapped up in the spite uh, spitefulness and victimhood instead of being able to say okay let's move this out of the fr- framework of let's just say we're going to just have at it history and we're going to spend you know hours upon hours arguing about hundreds of years of history that we didn't even live through by the way FYI and you don't even know if you're getting all the right history and by getting all the right history you don't know who's who whose voices along the way have been muted that we're actually telling the the most of the truth and those voices who are, you know, uh, amplified, who are telling all the lies, you know, that's why it takes a lot of work to get all these things configured. And by the way, we know academia has slanted itself so hard that you don't even know what you're getting, and <clears throat> that's we have to start working on this. Let me get a, let me stop here for a second. So let me continue on. I'm going to read a little bit more of this, and then we're going to toggle to my last topic, which is financially related. So uh, in this paper, by the way, it talks about allies and partners, and this is on page 10. The commission believes it it is the U.S. national interest to maintain, strengthen, and when appropriate, expand its network of alliances and partnerships. These relationships strengthen American security by deterring aggression regionally before it can reach the U.S. homeland, while also enabling U.S. economic prosperity through access to international markets. 
Withdrawing from U.S. alliances and partnerships would directly benefit adversaries, invite aggression that the United States might later have to reverse, and ultimately decrease American allied and partnership security and economic prosperity. Further, the Commission believes that our defense and our defense of current international order is strengthening when allies can directly contribute to broader strategic posture, and the United States should seek to incorporate those contributions as much as possible. Uh, some of this is uh, it harkens back to uh, the problem these, these neocons had, especially with Trump, in regards to his calling out our allies for what they are, which are paper machés who don't contribute much of anything to these alliances. Now, there'll be other there'll be others that'll offer that uh, they contribute in ways you just don't see. Uh, oh yes, oh yes, they're doing so much that I, you know, whether it be Five Eyes and spying and stuff like that. And maybe maybe there is a sense, but militarily, militarily, we're carrying the 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 lion's share of that in Trump for. Uh, what you think of him or not at this point he at least called them out on that <laughs> he expected that they change their change their tune and and honestly the the the, the thing is is these neocons are hustling because of course we know that they're grifting off this stuff they love war they just they just they're like pigs in slop they can't they if they don't have at least three or four proxy wars going they just aren't happy and I'm not saying Trump ended them all because he didn't, and not 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 in the least. He just didn't start any new, you know, hustles. But in this embedded in this document is the idea that you know they want to spend a lot more money, so defense spending. You know, they just want to amp it up to a couple trillion dollars. I mean, they want to spend they want to spend this into oblivion. And this is where I'm going to go to um, actually Doug Casey here. So he's talking about uh, you need to get your money out of Bank of America. That's the that's the that's the bottom tier point of this. But uh, let me start at the uh, go back up to where he where this touches off. This this is Doug Casey's take. It's his uh, Substack. I'll put a link to it, and it's written by Matthew Smith. <clears throat> so uh, it's just talking about the next finance when uh, Bank of America reports. Uh, on October 17th, so that's tomorrow, and it talks about the you know how we live beyond our means. Uh, first couple of paragraphs, and then it talks about you know the GFC, the global financial crisis, and and it gives some reference to a guy named uh, Porter Stansberry, and uh, talking about <clears throat> the end of America. So, and and what was written about that, but. Then he, you know, talks about in the next section. He talks about the invisible hand and capitalism, or I like to. I think I think it's better to use free enterprise. Capitalism is a loaded term, just like socialism is a loaded term. Communism, totalitarianism, authoritarianism—all these isms are loaded terms. And by loaded, I mean they come with baggage that weights them down and makes it hard for people to understand what they mean. And people have their come with, come at them with different thinking, uh, basically based upon what, uh, whether they're educated in one way or another, or perception in one way. Certain things certainly have uh, words should have meaning. Um, I'm not sure anymore that m- many people have a, um, a a proper appreciation for the 
how important it is for words to continue to have meaning uh, along, you know, the historical uh, framework which was in which they were <laughs> discussed. So we'll leave it at that. So he goes forward and he talks about you know, price discovery. So yes, <clears throat> if you don't have proper price discovery, uh, the markets can't function efficiently. You know, markets should have the most opportunity to do this. When governor when governments interfere, which is of course towards the socialism and the communism, particularly the, the socialism, that framework, government interference, regulation, of price fixing, uh, controls, those sorts of things uh, alter and skew, and it always benefits a class of people. The richest, most powerful people are always benefited by this stuff because they have the means, the access, the opportunity, the legal uh, opportunities to uh, rig the system to their most benefit or the rest of us and the, the people they like to raise taxes on cannot so anyway he goes forward to a section called how Britain went bankrupt a roadmap to the end of America and he talks about <clears throat> he starts off talking about Warren Buffett and his uh, his uh, dislike of gold and they don't understand, you know, and, and I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to read this verbatim. Quote, the purpose of gold, its utility, is to ensure that long-term economic relationships can be established and maintained efficiently with either side having to, without either side having to resort to force. The value of gold is determined by the market, not a central bank. It can't be printed. Gold's increasing supply is almost entirely determined by increases to industrial productivity, gains that are real or hard won, and that require the willing cooperation of thousands of people. I will suggest that, yeah, gold, people complain about gold supply, you know, we can't base on, uh, you know, things on a gold base or gold standard. Okay. Under normal circumstances, we probably increase the gold supply on a yearly basis by about 1% a year. It's something like that in terms of tonnage, um, which would, would equate to 1% inflation. If, you, if, the, if everything moved effectively, efficiently with that uh, price inflation, uh, in other words, uh, that would you know, be used as a, a, mechan a mechanism if everything would reevaluate accordingly. Maybe that's, in my estimation, in my theory, is that you pick a solid date, say, you know, January 1st or whatever. On that date, whatever whatever additions in gold supply. See, if everybody plays by the same rules, which of course we know they don't, which is ideal, but that's not reality. But if you get a, certainly a substantial number of people, substantial number of com countries, who accede to that idea that yes we will play by the same rules yes we will acknowledge that that gold will and in 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 the idea of the markets being fairly priced based upon a uh, a, a fixed set of gold but that fixed set of gold will then just move on one day you know every year the same day we reevaluate if you want to prices or whatnot or it could be done monthly it could be daily whatever the case may be it could be done that now we we have the capabilities um it, it is going to be perfect and that's the whole point markets have inefficiencies but you know 
that's goes without saying, but it's certainly more efficient than any government controlled policy, central banking policy. Um, certainly the laxity of regulation. People always think that when you say relaxity of regulation, you're meaning you're just trying to eliminate your, you're not, there's no going to be no accountability. That's wrong. No, you still have crimes. You still have criminal law. Actually, I would prefer if criminal law was much more applied in business situations, certainly where there is, uh, you know, obvious fraud, <laughs> obvious uh, ways where people are, you know, you can obviously financial crimes division, you know, those things should be addressed. It certainly would be if you do it to and the biggest, uh, biggest uh, suspects, which are the banks, by the way. Uh, you might start seeing some, uh, you might see some movement. You might see people actually start to uh, I believe that the law works accordingly and they would actually follow it. So anyway, getting back to this, uh, he goes forward and he talks about <clears throat> the British and how they uh, did their um, <clears throat> did their economy basically out of World War One, going back to World War One again. In 1914, one day after declaring war on Germany, Britain suspended the public's ability to exchange its currency pounds into gold go figure just like the united states in 1933 suspended their uh um <laughs> the gold getting uh 35 dollars uh uh you know being able to trade uh for gold uh usage and it's written in a executive order written by uh, fdr interesting that and there's a actually i had a uh a paper up and I'll, I'll, I'll I'm just I'm going all over the place there's just so much information I'll never be able to get through this but I, I I'm already at over an hour and I'm going to try to wrap it up here in a few a few minutes so uh there's a, a file I'll put in there it's from uh NBR, nbr.org so this is a chapter it says uh chronolo- chronology of an interbank banking crisis 1921 to 1936 15 years and there's just like two or three pages every country june 1921 sweden beginning of deposit contraction in 1921-22 leading to bank restructurings government assistance administered through credit bank of 1922 netherlands bank failures marks notably marks and company and amalgamations uh denmark 1922 heavy losses of one of the largest banks dansking Len, uh, Lemanetsky Bank and the liquidation of smaller banks. So, <clears throat> Norway, Austria. So, anytime any of these idiots who tell you that, you know, socialism is so great and wonderful and this and that and the other thing uh, overseas, they've had trouble with ba- there, there's no there's no special magic bullet there that these people have. It's been going on all over the world. It, um, yeah, all this, uh, all this hokum and all this hopium that they sell people to make them think that the, their system works so much better. No, it doesn't. It's happened everywhere. So I'll list Japan, for example. There you go. There's September 1923 in the wake of Tokyo earthquake, bad debts threatened Bank of Taiwan and Bank of Chosen, which are restructured with government help. Of course, uh, Spain, Poland, Norway, Italy. This is in 27. And then, of course, we go into the Great Depression. So this was in this is pre Great Depression. So uh, you know, 
the April 1927, Japan, 32 banks unable to make pa payments, restructuring of the 15th Bank and Bank of Taiwan. 15th Bank, I, I'm curious if that's just the 15th time they had to do that, something like this, or if that's just that name, we'll never know. August 1929, Germany, collapse of Frankfurter Allgemeine uh, Verschenrung AG, uh, followed by failures of smaller banks, runs on Berlin and Frankfurt Savings Banks. Uh, November 1929, Austria. Uh, I can't even pronounce it. Uh, Bowdoin Kreditstalt, uh, second largest bank, f uh, fails and is merged with uh, Kreditstalt. Uh, so, November 1930, France, and then Estonia. <clears throat> December 1930, Ju uh, U.S., failure of Bank of the United States, Italy. Withdrawals from the three largest banks begin a panic ensures, uh, ensues in 1931, following in in ensues. Uh, followed by a government reorganization and takeover of frozen industrial assets. April 1931, Argentina. <laughs> uh, May 1931, Austria, Belgium. June 1931, Poland. April through July of uh, 1931, Germany. <clears throat> Bank runs, extending difficulties plaguing the banking system since the summer of 1930. After a large loss of deposits in June and increasing strain on foreign exchanges, Many banks are unable to make payments, and uh, the Darmstadter uh, Bank uh, closes bank holiday. So it just goes on. List goes on. Hungary, Latvia, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Turkey, Egypt, Switzerland, Switzerland, uh, Union uh, Financia, the Gen uh, I guess uh, Geneva, rescued by takeover by uh, I can't even pronounce it. Uh, another Comte, Comte Escompte. De Genevieve, uh, Romania, Mexico. Yeah, don't don't get me on this. I'll put a link to it. You can read through this. So the point is, is you look at all these. It, it happened all. I mean, yeah, it's a Great Depression, but this is as late as uh, let's see. You know, it's like I said, it's worldwide, and it, it just ha a crisis. When people sit there and say, "Oh, this can't happen. This doesn't happen," they're full of it crisis i mean we see it continually and and what's the biggest part of this crisis uh loop that we're in you have central bank control you have central banks trying to manipulate they manipulate markets and manipulate prices and manipulate people um so going back to this uh thing by doug uh, uh doug uh casey so uh so instantaneously, when when they made that uh, in 1914, when the British suspended public's ability to exchange its currency for gold, its monetary monetary base rapidly doubled, generating a rising amount of inflation. Where have I heard that before? Just happened recently to the United States, which is what this is uh, lending to it. But it talked about the bond market, and that's where it goes into uh, going down through this. But trying to monetize you know you know this idea of a monetization or financialization of your debt uh <laughs> printing money um goes without saying this is how they do it and now the governments uh they they create a growing amount of debt and then the the power of the government goes up because you know in order to keep the you know keep the facade in place for the public you have to you know create these programs and make it seem like you're doing something with all this but it, it, it's bullshit and it talks about the instability that comes along with doing stuff like this you know income taxes rose 
uh, you know, everybody suddenly is supposed on, on the hook for everything the government does because it gets involved in wars. Wars are pl- the wars are only profitable for the people that are you know manufacturing the arms and and creating making sure they get their contracts filled. And of course, you don't want to lose a war because that's what everybody saw. You know, German reparations versus the the British and the French, who. Uh, the Americans came in and the American financiers, you know, obviously they placed their bets on, uh, they were placing their bets. Actually, they even had bets over in uh, the Soviet Union thereafter. Uh, most of the, the thinking about what the Soviets did in terms of their uh, economy thereafter, at least especially in the 30s, uh, Anthony Sutton uh, ferreted out that uh, a lot of that was just American American ingenuity and industry that went over there and helped or assisted many of the the failing industries and the failing economic uh, institutions of the the Soviets through uh, being backstopped by American corporations, whether it be GM or Ford or whoever else along the way that got you know um, involved with that situation. So this private sector has bailed out the government or bailed out, you know, the socialism uh, all the time because, you know, they're not creative. I mean, they're, they're creative in terms of how they'll paper over things and uh, use political force and political power to get what they want. I mean, this whole article is pretty long, but uh, it, it just goes into, you know, how the British economy, uh, he says here, quote, the British economy was in a permanent decline because of the socialist policies that they adopted after World War One. Higher taxes, more government spending wasn't creating prosperity, no matter what the politicians promised. By 1931, with a global recession underway, two and a half million people were unemployed in Britain, more than 20 percent of the workforce. The government's employment uh, unemployment fund was borrowing more than 100 million pounds per month or 5% of GDP to pay unemployment benefits. 5%, they were borrowing that much. This caused government spending to double. As the government's deficit exploded, there was no orthodox way to continue to make interest payments. So in September of 1931, Britain left the gold standard and began to monetize their debts. So with total debt to GDP at around 130% and transfer payments exploding, causing a doubling of government deficits, Britain began its final collapse. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's what's going on in the United States right now. So, when you don't when you don't have a sound money, and then it goes into this whole uh, section on bonds, and I'm not going to read it all because it's pretty long. But there's he's got pictures and graphics, and you can read through this. I'm going to link this. It's well worth the trouble to kind of get a. Not, there's nothing new under the sun. War is war is hell. War is unprofitable. Uh, People make agreements, don't keep to their agreements, don't understand what they're supposed to, uh, what's the accomplishment here. Of course, there's motivations behind that too. That's why, you know, maybe people should start looking for people that are principled. In, 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 in This goes to uh, our current leadership in the United States and, you know, figurehead leadership and, and the people in D.C., uh, that paper I was talking, they mentioned the word bipartisanship in this one area. Bar, uh, they need, we need to come together. By, uh, no, it's a uniparty. These people want to do what they want to do, and they don't care whether the American people likes it. 
they don't they they've already come to the conclusion that they're going to do what they're going to do irrespective of of our wishes uh the thing is is uh i'm not a warmonger i i do understand that china is a threat and i do understand that russia has their capabilities as well i do realize that uh you you that's the why it's so important to have productive conversations and i obviously come at them uh from a position of strength but it's hard to be in a position of strength when you're trying to sell you know the social social degradation of our society is so abundantly obvious to anyone who's lived through you know 50 or 60 years and and understands that you know the morality and decency levels and the educational levels that's another topic in and of itself is you know uh recently the the act by the way just just it's just a number but showed massive declines in scores and they that's even with them trying to do less testing around the country many many states don't even want to use the test it's not because there's a phrase what gets measured gets managed so if you don't measure it and don't want the scores then you don't manage it but more to the point it just shows the epic failure of the educational system uh that's undergirding this country and why is it so bad because we have created an economic crisis we've created a social crisis it's all coming together and it people are you know they become um what do you call it which what's the word i'm thinking they become very stuck in uh, this article says it i mean let me bring bring this back together and then i'll close out here so uh let's see among the reasons we should let's see here uh let me get through wasted trillion okay and here's the real issue let me see uh, hold on i'm just thinking out loud and <laughs> um so yeah there's just yeah, there, uh, it's just so much. It basically, once people become uh, caught in their own doom loop cycle, uh, they get become we're all self interested people, and we look for other people to blame because taking responsibility. I mean, taking responsibility for our own actions and taking response. Our government doesn't want to take responsibility for its actions. Of course not. They. That's why the propaganda has just gotten to the point where. You know, I don't even listen to the mainstream news about anything. I look for people who, like this, go through numbers and go through history and try to consolidate a whole host of uh, concepts into one uh, sizable chunk that kind of relates to what's going on. Um, The fact that, you know, Ukraine and Israel are on the plate and on the docket to, you know, throw more money at, uh, you know. Do I feel, can I feel sympathy for other countries around the world? Sure, I can feel sympathy for all kinds of people who, who are at the... And here's the thing, I to be blunt, is when this country explodes and we are at each other's throat, which is what they want, that's what the, the, the central planners and all these other uh, globalist, elitist parasites want, the Jeeps, as I call them, uh, no one's going to come to rescue us. You can guarantee that. I can guarantee that 100%. No one will come to rescue you. 
they won't come they won't come with their their shovel or their their monies or their support i mean they'll they'll be clapping they'll be clapping for our demise that doesn't mean that you shouldn't respect our you know agreements or allies or allyship or whatever however you want to position that but that's that also goes back to like world war 1 we know that there was a lot of alliances the the the, the tripartite uh, alliance and uh, detente these these groups were uh, set up to you know cause wars because it was like well you better you better follow follow through or else you know what kind of uh, what kind of uh, uh, you know two faced son of a that's why you don't just get yourself willy nilly into agreements that you know have no uh, you know, there's only, there's only one way to go with them, I guess you could say. Um, I think most people should spend a lot of time thinking about the things that they get involved in. I had that conversation earlier tonight. Um, agreements, contracts, uh, alliances, treaties, uh, because they always wind up sucking you into things that you you have you have no capacity to to fulfill for one thing and we don't at this point we can't even fulfill our own own uh 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 capacity to our own people i mean that's just the truth and in 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 you know bad po- you know this is just the uh this is irresponsibility at its highest order so i'm going to leave it there for now i've talked for almost 80 minutes um god bless the united states of america and god save the world